I'm Ambreen Khan, and this is Inspired. On May 8th, many Muslims around the world, after breaking their fast, will gather to pray through the night in the hopes that it is the night of power, Laylatul Qadr. To understand the significance of the night, we have to go back 1,400 years for the origin story. And that's where we'll find Muhammad at age 40, having survived his childhood, now married and relatively successful. He would often retreat to a cave known as Hira, or he would meditate alone in silence, quiet above the outskirts of the busy metropolis below, Mecca, according to 9th century Arab historian Ibn Ishq. It was on this night, Muslims believe, that Muhammad would have an encounter with Archangel Gabriel, commanding a visibly shaken man to do something most people in the 7th century could not, to read. According to Ibn Ishq, three years lapsed from this first experience until Muhammad began to preach, sharing those revelations and attracting followers. Over 23 years of his life, the collection of revelations would become known as the Recitation, or Quran. And it was preserved to memory, first by Muhammad and then by his close followers, women and men. Those who commit the entire Quran to memory earn the honorific title of Hafiz, Guardians of the Recitation. During the month of Ramadan, the Hafiz often lead prayers each night, beginning on the first with Surah Fatiha. It's known as the opening. Allah God is great. Praise be to God, Lord Most gracious, the most merciful. Master of the day of judgment, it is you we worship, and upon you we call for help. Goddess of the path of those you have blessed, not of those against whom there is anger, nor of those who are misguided. Those clips gathered on YouTube are from Hafiz reciting Surah Fatiha around the world. It's not easy to get the same sound and melody when reciting Arabic. Hafiz, however, they get it right each and every time. To learn how, I turn to someone who would know. It has been preserved letter by letter, vowel by vowel, diacritic by diacritic. Uh, it is about more than 600 pages long. Uh, there's about 114 chapters in the Quran, which we in, in, in Arabic call them surahs. Um, and that's what students memorize uh, every day. That's Harun Bakai. He's the principal of a private religious school in Maryland that offers a special program that teaches young students to recite the entire Quran by heart. Bakai himself started to memorize it when he was very young. I think I learned the Quran because my parents had me do it. Uh, as simple as that. I was six years old or a little, yeah, five or six years old when I first started. I was kindergarten, first grade. After three years of studying, he could recite the 114 chapters and earn the title of Hafiz. It's derived from the Arabic word hifs, 
He explains. So hifz comes from the the Arabic root word hafila, uh, which means to preserve, to preserve something. Uh, and so it comes from the preservation of the Quran. We have a special program for the memorization of the Quran. And so these are students who are memorizing the Quran. They memorize the Quran cover to cover from beginning to end. Uh, they are. This is what they're dedicated to for two or three years of their lives. I met Imam Bakai at the campus that was established nearly two decades ago in an old elementary school purchased from the school system. It hasn't been modernized, but it's got all the sights and sounds of a busy school. What is that? What's that poster of? I see kids of all ages moving between classes, gym, art, science. And a few minutes after the bells ring, we head outside in search for a quiet spot. The kids in the religious memorization school, the HIF school, they will not take English and math. Those subjects are covered in homeschooling with their parents. So I'm curious, what does their day look like here? So I would say their day is pretty much all day. They are reading the Quran, they're memorizing the Quran, they are reviewing what they have memorized. So pretty much all day they're reading Quran from 8, 10 a.m. to about 3:15 p.m., of course, they have breaks like other kids do. They have a lunch break, they have a recess break, they have a snack break, they have a prayer break. Then occasionally they'll go out for a little bit of a PE. Uh, so they have those breaks, they play, but uh, they're pretty much reading, memorizing, reviewing Quran all day. For the HIF students at Imam Bakai school, the rigor of the schedule is not unique. Earlier in the day, I visited another HIF school, this one run by the Dianette Center of America in Lanham, Maryland. I met several teachers and students who ranged in age from 7 to 15. The classes were open for both boys and girls. My name is Ghassan Mubarak. That is Ghassan Mubarak. She is one of the HIFS teachers at the Dianette Center. Now, unlike her students, Mubarak memorized the Quran when she was 20. Most of her students here are much younger. The day I met her, she was teaching six elementary school-age girls wearing colorful headscarves. I asked her if young and older women also attend. Are there a lot of women who are also um, Hafiz al-Quran? Yes, here in Adena Center, yeah. We have 200 and something women came. They have three classes. After I leave Mubarak's class, the imam leads me to another group of students, middle school and high school boys. We're going to take off our shoes. We head into the classroom where 19 boys are sitting at desks reciting. Assalamualaikum. Thank you. Your name? Imam Arachi introduced me to their new teacher, Imam Yakub, and explains how the boys learn. Everybody has different page to memorize and review, and everybody read their own page, okay, loudly, and it's like like a sound of B here, okay, and they read, and whenever they get ready, okay, they go to the uh, their teacher and read, uh, and if they don't have any mistake, okay, they pass the page and uh, they pass the other homework. He invited the students to read for me, and Ali, an outgoing 12-year-old, volunteered. Beautiful. How old are you? I am 12 years old. And when did you start memorizing the Quran? Uh, about 
three and a half years ago. And why did you decide that that was something you were ready to do? Um, I just thought that it would be easier for me to do because I was reaching maturity and my parents wanted me to have a lot of um, reward from Allah. And I, w- I was thinking that I wanted to have a lot of reward. And um, and this is your, you come to school here every day? Yes. And then are you also homeschooled? Yes, I do online schooling. Ah. And um, what's, the, what's the biggest challenge of doing this program? Um, it's in a different language, so it's really hard to do. But still, um, the teachers, like, great, great, like, I'm happy that they're here to teach us. There are a lot of fears about Islam and the Quran. Muslim kids are aware of the misconceptions. I asked Ali how he responds. Like, what is the biggest thing that they get wrong about it? Um, it's not about war or, like, anything like that. It's always about kindness and helping people and teaching, and teaching people. Do you speak Arabic at home? No, I speak uh, Urdu. You speak Urdu. Oh, wow. And do you are you learning the Arabic as well to understand the meaning? Like slowly, slowly. I was my parents and the teachers are thinking that after I finish my the whole entire thing, then I'm going to start learning Arabic. Ali has memorized 85% of the Quran and he has every intention of finishing. It's very important to him as a matter of faith. Imam Bakai explains why. So we say in Islam, the, 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 the primary sources of knowledge, of Islamic knowledge, of Islamic information, Islam, is the Qur'an and the Sunnah, which is the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Uh, so Qur'an being one of the primary sources of knowledge and information, uh, it is considered a big deal. It's a very important thing in Islam for people to memorize the Qur'an in the Arabic language, uh, the language in which the Qur'an was revealed. Uh, and so it, it's it's considered a part of the preservation of the Qur'an that Allah preserves the Qur'an multiple ways. One of the main ways is by preserving the Qur'an in the hearts of the people. As You know, millions of people across the world, they memorize the Qur'an. For those unfamiliar with the Qur'an, can you just give me like an overview? Uh, so the Qur'an is uh, the, the holy book of the Muslims. It was revealed to Prophet Muhammad, the final prophet, the final messenger, uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. It was revealed to him uh, more than 1,400 years ago, uh, and it has been preserved since then, letter by letter, vowel by vowel, diacritic by diacritic. Uh, it is about um, more than 600 pages long. Um, uh, there's about 114 chapters in the Quran, which we in, in, in Arabic call them surahs, um, and that's what students memorize uh, every day. And how has that been preserved? Islam, when it's when during the time of the Prophet, you're talking seventh uh, century A.D. How do you ensure that the pronunciation that I'm going to hear in a mosque in Istanbul is the same as I'm going to hear in Mali or in uh, Birmingham, Alabama? Uh, so when we talk about the preservation of the Quran, we say that it is preserved in the Arabic language exactly the way it was revealed. If you pick up a copy of the Quran in, in the United States or in Turkey or in Germany or in Japan, uh, the, the Arabic copy of the Quran will be identical. Uh, different people across the world, they learn to recite the Quran in Arabic. Uh, and that's what it's preserved. Of course, the translations could be very different. Even within a sim- single language, there might be multiple translations of the, the, the Quran, but the Arabic is preserved the way it is. And the pronunciation, as people learn in Arabic, yes, those pronunciations are very similar, if not identical. 
A person who reads the whole Quran is a Hafiz. Is it, do they read it or do they memorize it? Like read it. Read the whole Quran, the whole, study Jews. They study the Jews. And what's a Jews? Yeah, the chapters of the the Quran. Every 114 surahs. There are 114 surahs. And how many Jews are there? 30. 30. 30. 30. And how long do you think it's going to take you to memorize? Two years. Two and a half years. All right, so here's a little quiz. I'm going to say something, and you tell me if I pronounced it correctly. So I would say that overall, uh, it sounded that you were saying it right, but your pronunciation of some of the letters was not right. So, for example, when you say the letter who, when we say who, it's supposed to have what I like to call as an air component, meaning air comes out of your mouth, and a sound component, a sound that comes out of your throat, by the chest area. So you're supposed to say the who as who, who, and not, you know, how you would say, for example, house in Arabic. So there is a peculiarity there. Yeah, so you're like the second person today to tell me that I'm not enunciating. So if I'm teaching it to anyone, like my kids, I'm not teaching it correctly. That is correct. We're talking about two things here. Number one is the idea of pronunciation. The Quran was revealed in Arabic, and at the time when it was revealed to Prophet Muhammad, he spoke Arabic, the people around him spoke Arabic. Uh, later on, as generations go, uh, you know, went on, uh, when Islam you know, spread around in the world, and some of the people who were not Arabs, as they got exposed to the Arabic language, that's where some of these rules of Tajweed were codified. So they, 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 these were codified much later uh, in terms of how people had learned from generation after generation. Uh, so these rules of pronunciation were codified later. We're focused on the way in which vowels and syllables and word sounds are enunciated and recited to ensure that the word is not distorted. But I want to ask you a different question. If you are memorizing, are you also learning the meaning of it? So in general, when we talk about traditionally in, in, the, in the schools, for example, in HIF schools, not just here but across the world, uh, no, we are not, we're not helping them memorize the meaning. We, we do encourage them. We teach them the general um, Arabic words and their meanings and a little bit of grammar such that they have an idea about what they're reading. But no, that's not the focus. The focus is to memorize it as it is in Arabic language. And that, I think, is, um, uh, is it's a miracle of the Qur'an. It's, it's, it's truly a miracle of the Qur'an that there are people across the globe who memorize the Qur'an whose language may not be Arabic. They don't even understand what they're memorizing, but they are able to memorize it. And they memorize it in a perfect way and they can recite it to you in a perfect way Uh, now, yes, you know, we encourage, and that is, of course, people should learn the Qur'an because the idea behind the Qur'an is to implement, you know, what you learn from the Qur'an. So, yes, people should, uh, you know, learn the meanings. 
Do you ever worry that the not teaching the meaning to someone who becomes a Hafiz al-Quran, that it may create an expectation that they are an expert in the Quran? I mean, I in fact, I just interviewed a young person who's completed it, and he's he's now 13, and he's now helping a younger group. And he was so filled with um, a sense of calling and, no question, a sense of deep spiritual meaning for him. But I asked him if he spoke Arabic or if he learned to translate the classical Quranic Arabic, and he said no. He knows the meaning of a few things, but he doesn't. Do you have any concerns? You know, you're almost 40. We live in a world in which you can memorize things, but the distinction between reading and knowing is a big one. So we encourage students. Of course, it's a concern that students, when they, and we, that's what we tell students even at their graduation, that look, what you, what you have done, it's a great accomplishment, but understand this is just the beginning. We encourage them that they should go on and learn more, learn the Quran, uh, enroll in programs that they can learn the Arabic language. Uh, because yes, people do look up to the people who have memorized the Quran because tomorrow they may be leading them in the prayer. They may be leading them in Ramadan. They may be leading them in Tarawih. So yes, we strongly encourage them that they should go on and, uh, and, and, and learn the meaning of the Quran so that they can teach it to other people and they can understand on, for their own selves to understand the Quran in a holistic fashion. One has to learn the Quran as well as the Sunnah, the traditions of the, of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in its totality. Because if you don't, if you learn a few things and then based on that you you know, start passing judgments, of course, that, that, that could be problematic. And, and, and it happens that sometimes people will learn a little bit and all of a sudden they are treated as the scholars and they're not the scholars. Uh, and when people turn to them and they may say something, not that they're, they're meaning to say something wrong or bad, but this is what they know. They don't know everything. They don't know the entire tradition. And that's where people, you know, fall short and make mistakes. Why do you think parents are sending their kids to school here and then homeschooling them later? Why does it have some meaning today? The memorization of the Qur'an in and of itself is considered a virtue. It's considered a virtue in Islam. In Islam, you know, we, we learn that when you recite the Qur'an, when you read the Qur'an, for every letter that you read, you get 10 good deeds, maybe even more, you know, 70 to 700. And then, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he, he taught us that the best of you are those people who learn the Qur'an and teach it. So if we want to prepare our students to face the challenges of today in the 21st century in the West, or be it anywhere in the world, uh, we know and we understand that the Qur'an that was sent down by the Creator it was sent for people 1,400 years ago today and 1,400 years later. The Qur'an is relevant today. It is relevant here in the United States in the 21st century. And it will be relevant in the 40th century as well. That was Imam Yakup Consiglo, director of the Hif School at the Dianet Center in Lanham, Maryland and Imam Harun Bakai, the principal of an Islamic school and full-time HIFS program. My conversation and trips to the school took place before the pandemic in 2018. Currently, the Dianet School has suspended its programs, while Imam Bakai School continues its courses online. Imam Bakai asked that we not share the location and name of the school for security reasons, and we are honoring that request. 
This segment was originally produced by Lauren Marco and Kevin McCarthy. Coming up, my conversation with national religion reporter Kelsey Dallas. She's taking a closer look at how faith communities are responding to the initiatives, outreach, and actions of the Biden-Harris administration at that 100-day mark. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired. You know, there's an expression that politics is like a transaction. Candidates will make a promise on what they will do for your vote, and the advocates who helped elect them, well, they keep the receipts. In the world of faith and politics, it's important to remember that influence comes not just from money and donations, but the ability to mobilize the base and influence the public discourse. We're going to take a look now at how faith-based organizations feel about the priorities and actions taken by President Biden in his first 100 days. National religion reporter Kelsey Dallas joins me. She's an editor at the Salt Lake City-based Desiree News. On April 30th, she published a lengthy feature detailing where President Biden has kept his promises and where he fell short. She joins me by phone from Salt Lake City. Kelsey Dallas. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be back. How did you choose the actions to profile? I tried to remember what issues had gotten the most intense reaction from religious communities. So like most reporters, my inbox is regularly filling up with press releases. And if it's something significant, we're talking about 15 to 20 emails within minutes of each other saying, I love this or I hate this. And so I really tried to say, okay, so there's all these different policy moves, but which ones elicited the strongest reaction? And then I sort of cut myself off once the responses started to dwindle down. Kelsey, the statements and press releases you're reading, you're getting those from faith 
faith-based organizations for the most part, not individual clergy or houses of worship. Definitely. That's a great point. I think most of the releases I get are actually from organizations that are adjacent to denominations or actually aren't affiliated with a specific church. They're just a group of faith-based activists who care about a specific issue. So maybe one area where this is especially present is in immigration. There are a wide variety of faith groups that work very hard on immigration reform or relatedly on refugee resettlement and refugee policy advocacy. Let's start there. Can you walk us through President Biden's major actions on immigration policy? You know, cover the border, the wall, refugees, treatment of unaccompanied children. I mean, there is a whole list of policy actions and demands under that rubric of immigration. And he made many promises during the campaign. Absolutely. So on his very first day in office, President Biden got to work on immigration. He paused construction on the border wall. He paused certain deportations. And he also put forward his immigration reform proposal. He sent it over to Congress. And I think that faith groups were broadly supportive of the moves he was making. I think immigration was where President Trump sometimes got in trouble with even his strongest religious supporters that were very upset about family separation at the border, for example. What's been fascinating to watch is that President Biden started out on this this foot that many faith groups were supportive of, but quickly got into hot water as the situation at the southern border became more and more tense as we saw more people arriving and the Biden administration was continuing to keep people in what have, have been called inhumane conditions. And I think that there's just been this widespread sense that Biden has the right ideas in mind, has some good plans that he's discussing, but maybe hasn't moved fast enough or been aggressive enough. And that came to a head in mid-April when his administration announced that they weren't going to raise the refugee ceiling nearly as high as they promised. And in fact, in their initial announcement, said they weren't going to raise it this year at all. They were going to keep it at this low level put forward by Trump. The backlash from faith groups across the spectrum was so swift that they said, "Okay, okay, we'll reconsider. And this month they're supposed to announce a slightly elevated refugee ceiling for this year. Kelsey, where was that backlash coming from? You just said across the political spectrum. I just want to be clear. Did that include conservative voices? And whose voices were the loudest? Which organizations were publicly calling out President Biden for failing to reverse the Trump era decision? It was certainly all groups. But when you talk about the strongest, I think what was interesting was it was these refugee resettlement agencies that had been very aligned with the Biden administration's plans. And I think they felt betrayed by the announcement because they had been working closely with the Biden administration to say, how can we repair some of the damage done while Trump was in office and very quickly move to resettle large numbers and to pay attention to where the most dangerous situations are happening around the world and and help people get to the U.S. to a better life. And so they were talking about this as, as, like I said, a betrayal where Biden had met with them on the campaign, met with them in the early days of administration, said, "Okay, we're on track to do this. And they just felt blindsided by the idea that he was pulling back. How did the administration respond? It was only a couple hours later that there was this announcement from the administration that they would have further updates coming in May. Again, I don't believe that anyone expects the refugee sailing to be raised all the way to 125,000 was, I think, an original promise from Biden. But it will at least be somewhere in the middle, maybe around 65,000 refugees resettled this year. 
And I know that people are still not completely satisfied, but they are at least grateful that the administration responded to that backlash. And it really shows the power of religious voices in this administration and in politics in general. Were you surprised by that, by the ability of these faith-based groups to get a response so quickly from the administration? No, I think that the Biden administration has worked hard to build bridges to a wide variety of religious communities. So I think it made sense for them to take seriously the criticisms that were out there. One of the ideas that I highlighted in my article was that Biden has taken very seriously the work of religious groups on a wide variety of social issues, and he reestablished the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Partnerships to make sure that the government was trying to nurture church-state partnerships in a wide variety of areas of the law. And so I, I think it made sense for him to sort of regroup and say, whoa, I must have made a misstep. How can I fix this? Many of former President Trump's positions, frankly, fueled the multi-faith and interfaith coalitions that organized over the last four years. And a lot of folks point to the first executive order he issued as president. On the campaign trail, President Trump promised to ban Muslim migration, and his first executive order sought to ban Muslim nationals from Muslim-majority countries. After several revisions and being upheld by the Supreme Court, that ban remained in effect. On day one, though, President Biden, as he promised on his campaign trail, rescinded the executive order. What has been the response? Groups across the political spectrum were excited about that move because many faith groups had referred to it as a violation of religious freedom and felt that it was sending the wrong message about America. And so they were excited about Biden quickly acting. But I think that we can actually compare it pretty well to what's going on with immigration policy where faith groups are saying, well, we love that, but we'd like even more. Oh, thank you, Biden, but can you do this next? Where it's sort of like, we're so glad that this travel ban is not on the books anymore, but Biden, could you throw your support between passing something like the No Ban Act in Congress that says no future administration could put a similar travel ban in place? And so I was fascinated to really read and understand that as I was working on my article that religious groups are really expecting quite a lot from Biden, and they're not going to rest with sort of, oh, great, you did the first thing. I'm so pleased. I'll never speak against you again. They really want to push him to just keep moving forward and going to the great lengths to protect faith communities around the world. Let's talk about the Equality Act. It's been introduced several times. It seems to be the closest now to passing. The LGBTQ community and faith-based advocates are pushing for the act because it will extend the 1964 Civil Rights Act to explicitly prevent discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. It originally passed the House in 2019, and then it's passed the House again just a couple months ago. And Biden has thrown his support behind it, which has strained his relationship with conservative religious leaders. Now, I know that they maybe would never have been the biggest fan of Biden because of his stance on other issues like abortion rights, but it's just been complicated for him to try to have relationships across the religious spectrum while also pushing hard to make these advances in the realm of LGBTQ rights. Mm. Kelsey, when you talk about conservative religious leaders, are you talking again about conservative religious leaders within a denomination? Or are you talking about religious political leaders who run organizations like the Family Research Council? 
both because I think that there is fear from groups like Family Research Council about how this would affect their activism and then the like social services organizations that they help support and are excited about. But you also see these leaders within denominations that are worried because, like I said, it could touch faith-based schools, which are tied into denominations. And then there's even fears out there about how it would affect churches because sometimes churches run public-facing organizations like food pantries or homeless shelters. Supporters of the Equality Act said that a lot of those fears are overblown, but it doesn't change the fact that I think the conservative religious world in general is is on edge about this debate. If you're receiving federal funds uh, through your local government to, for example, run a food pantry mm-hmm. for the community or a homeless shelter, what threat do people who are opposing the Equality Act, what do they what do they see happening here? So if you receive those government funds to operate this organization, like I said, a homeless shelter or a food pantry, uh, in general, you're expected to serve all who come to get that help because, again, it's money that's meant to help the entire community, not just members of your church, for example. But there's been this concern that if you want to take part in that type of public facing program, that it then gives the government to dive deeper into your activities. Now, supporters of the Equality Act said that that's not true, that there remains this important separation between church and state and that churches have a right to practice how they want and preach what they want and that it really is just focused on that specific service activity. I've read the Equality Act, and so I I just want to say I am very skeptical of that criticism because, again, the act does not speak to scrutinizing the religious behavior. It speaks to the use of federal dollars in public accommodations and giving services to the public on behalf of the government. It's like a partnership. It has nothing to do with the ideological or theological positions that would be uh, shared from a pulpit or religious service, you know, whether it's a mosque, a gurdwara, a temple, a church. So I am curious, when you hear those types of critiques, do you feel like those are rooted in the reading of the legislation or are those intended to just incite, mobilize and, frankly, energize the base to oppose it? It's probably more the latter, that it's just trying to quickly stir up uh, anger and stir up pushback against the Equality Act. However, in my stories, I've tried to get to this deeper concern about maybe what you'd call a slippery slope, that if you pass a legislation like this, it wouldn't take long for there to be additional policy passed down the road that just shove religious teachings against same-sex marriage farther and farther away from the public square, that it would just become more and more unpopular to believe those things. Kelsey, isn't that a separate issue? I mean, you're that's what you, sounds like what you're hearing is a fear about a shift in our culture not opposition to preventing discrimination. I mean, the Equality Act is specifically targeting the issue of people in the LGBTQ community being discriminated against, being fired, you know, from their jobs, being denied housing, being denied public accommodations at like a homeless shelter, being denied food at a food pantry. I mean, that is very, very precise and specific uh, that relates to addressing discrimination in this incredibly diverse country that we have. And frankly, when you talk about public opinion and attitudes in the broader culture, they're already there. 
What's been interesting to me is that as I interview folks from either more conservative religious denominations or from denominational branched organizations that do social service work, is that they're aware of sort of the reputation that they're getting in the public square. They're aware that they're more known for their attacks on the LGBT community than they are for their beliefs. And there's been efforts to address that. If you've paid attention to statements from various religious leaders, including the Catholic Church, they've been trying to include in their critique of the Equality Act statements in support of the gay community, of the transgender community, saying that we're all made in the image of God. And I think that they are aware that it's a very difficult line they're trying to walk. And so far, it's missing a lot of their potential audience, if that makes sense. Like they're struggling to get their message heard by everyday Americans, but they do have very strong support from Republican leaders in Congress. So I listened to, for example, the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the Equality Act and the Republican speakers who were there were saying the same things as conservative religious leaders and were sort of pressing all of these concerns about interference with churches, for example. Well, it's not new that Republican leaders would be echoing the messages of conservative religious groups, particularly those coming out of the religious right. Do you see a closer relationship now between Republican leadership and these conservative organizations? Yes, I think that they remain aligned as they were throughout the Trump era. And I think that it's just that the conservative religious world is is almost overlapping with the conservative political world. And so it's no surprise that we see these Republican leaders uh, sharing their messages in Congress and want to sort of talk about that regularly in their political work. During the Trump administration, one area where we did see some faith groups supporting and celebrating some of the positions was around the area of international religious persecution. Secretary Pompeo was speaking out more forcefully about the plight of the Uyghur population in China that has been systematically targeted, detained, tortured, so far, Biden's been working along with his State Department to continue to pressure religious persecutors around the world to change their act. And one of the ways they've done this was by sanctioning Chinese officials for their treatment of Muslims and other Turkish minority groups and to say that we're not going to let you off the hook for this, even though you were an important trade partner, for example. And so there were groups from across the political spectrum and across the religious spectrum who were saying thank you to the Biden administration for not just levying those sanctions, but for also talking about the Chinese government's acts in a human rights report that came out recently. Are you hearing that advocates are satisfied or are they pressing for more? Pressing for more. I think it's very similar to what I was saying with the repeal of the travel ban where it said, OK, thanks for doing this. But could you also pass the no ban act? Could you also increase the refugee ceiling? Similar here is, okay, you've sanctioned these Chinese officials, but have you called the country to account in every conversation you've had with them? Have you made it a piece of ongoing trade negotiations? And have you brought this up with other countries that are on the U.S. Commission of International Religious Freedoms list of countries of particular concern? So there's always more that the White House could be doing. And I think that faith groups are just going to continue pushing, pushing, pushing until they see continued action. I'm talking with Kelsey Dallas, a national religion reporter with the Desiree News. On April 30th, President Biden marked 100 days in office. And Dallas, she wrote a feature detailing how faith groups responded to his legislative agenda and the actions he's taken over those 100 days. 
Now we turn to the latest infrastructure proposal that President Biden and Vice President Harris are touting as they travel across the country. Kelsey, how are faith-based advocates responding to President Biden's infrastructure proposal that includes lots of social investments to support, as he describes, working families? And that includes universal pre-K, support for daycare, and expansion of the earned income credit. What's going on? One that I find very fascinating and that we've been covering quite a bit at the Deseret News because of Senator Mitt Romney's work on it is a child tax credit or a variety of ways that the Biden administration is looking to potentially help families with maybe support for daycare or a paid family leave. And why I think that's fascinating is that There's been faith leaders and other types of conservative leaders who are saying, of course, we want families to feel supported. Of course, we want families to have the resources to continue having more kids. But we shouldn't put policies in place that make it as if both parents working is the norm. There's still this interest in having the option to have mom or dad, one of them be a stay at home parent. And I think there's frustration that maybe putting universal preschool or universal daycare in place makes it sound like we just all have to work. So I'm fascinated by that. Because I think that religious groups want something to be done, but there's going to be a lot of tension about what actually would help families the most. I think that it's just this concern that we're missing some parts of America by just saying that daycare is the answer. Is the proposal actually saying that daycare is the answer or is it saying that we need to have more access to affordable care options for children who are not school aged? It depends on who you ask. Certainly, I don't think I don't think the Biden administration would say daycare is the perfect option for every single family. Let's get everyone involved. But I think that that's how certain conservatives react to it out of just sort of fear of of the trends in the country today. When you talk about trends in the country, I'm curious, how are faith groups reacting to the fact that so many women have been forced out of the labor market because of the pandemic, the economic crisis and frankly, the absence of affordable child care? I know that Biden introduced the American Families Plan relatively recently, so there's plenty of time for people to get heated about it, to start debating it. But I would really like to hear more religious voices speak out and say their own thoughts on what's the best for families or what they hope could be done for families, because this is a very complicated debate where people don't exactly line up conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. And so those are the ones that I think create the most opportunities for some really interesting coalitions. And I feel the same about immigration, as we discussed earlier, that because it's just a very complex debate, I think we can shake some traditional coalitions up and say, OK, let's how do we work together? How do I form new partnerships? And so I'm hoping that faith groups remain open to partnering with all sorts of groups as they try to do what's best for families, what's best for immigrants, what's best for re- refugees. You know, I appreciate you bringing it back to immigration and the complexity of legislating and how many coalition advocates are out there seeking to influence public policy on behalf of people of faith. Boy, there are a lot of groups and lots of faith-based advocacy groups that are trying to do just that. And I imagine a lot of people have no idea how many groups are trying to speak on their behalf, which is the reason why I was really happy to have you on and appreciate your story. I want to shift for a moment to the White House and who they listen to. And it's related, right? The White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships is kind of an institution that is charged with different things under different administrations. What do you see happening 
in the Biden administration? Well, I believe that the Trump administration took a while to reestablish that office. Again, it's been present since the Bush era, but it has ebbs and wanes from time to time because of the steps the administration has to take to actually staff it. And I think that was the issue during the Trump administration is that they said we're supportive of this work, but then took forever to actually appoint a leader. And so the concern there was that there were less formal channels for faith groups to reach out to the administration and say, here's what we're seeing. Here's what we'd like to do. How can you assist us? It was just sort of like there wasn't an obvious phone number to call. There wasn't an obvious email to send. And so I think the Biden administration worked very quickly to put these more formal structures in place so that you know, hey, Melissa Rogers can help me. Hey, her staff in other federal agencies can help me and they can start convening conversations. And she recently spoke to that at a conference I attended where she was saying that there's just listening sessions happening on all sorts of issues. And so the Biden administration has just been a little bit more formal in the way that it's approached church-state partnerships. And I think that there are pros and cons to each approach, but I think that a lot of religious groups, for what it's worth, are just used to working in a more formal system and so are relieved uh, with the approach the Biden administration has taken. Mm. Kelsey, I'd be remiss not to bring up that hate crimes continue to be on the rise, the concerns about anti-Asian violence and violence targeting houses of worship. You know, it's Ramadan, as you well are aware, and a lot of folks are in limited places gathering at their mosques, including at night. And I know many community leaders have raised concerns about security. Where do you see the Biden administration on this question of keeping houses of worship, gurdwaras, temples, mosques, churches safe, particularly as hate-motivated violence continues to rise? I think the celebrations of Ramadan call to mind, as you mentioned, some of the struggles of the Muslim community while Trump was in office. And they, like members of other minority groups in the U.S., have been victims of some religiously motivated violence. Maybe not the perpetrator's religion caused it, but the victim's religion was part of what was motivating that violent act. And so I have heard that the Biden administration is very serious about addressing safety concerns when it comes to religion and is trying to expand nonprofit security grants for houses of worship, but also listen to everyday people of faith about what they're afraid of, why they're nervous about walking down the street with a turban on or with a hijab on. And so I think that they are working very hard to make sure that all members of the religious community in the U.S. feel safe to live out their faith in public and are going to continue to work on that in the coming months. Before we wrap up, I just want to ask, Kelsey, is there anything you want to circle back to or bring up that we haven't yet touched? I do want to touch on one more thing about that equality debate and LGBTQ rights. Uh, Right now, the bill is sitting in the Senate. As I said, there was a Judiciary Committee hearing, but the question is, what needs to change or or what needs to happen in the country for that bill to get enough votes to overcome the Senate filibuster. So that would be 60 votes that would need to bring in some Republicans. And I think the question is whether some conservative faith groups would be happy if the Equality Act just adjusted some of its uh, some of its effect on religious freedom law and just said, hey, we're going to protect the gay community, but we're also going to allow faith groups to challenge this in court in in moments where they feel pressure on them. And so I'm just fascinated to follow that. Are we actually going to see the Senate pick that up? And will Biden end up sort of agreeing with some of those religious freedom policy adjustments so that he can continue to build bridges with more conservative people of faith? 
I've told people before that although I define myself as someone who covers religious freedom, that would mean many different things to many different people because in the same story, in stories reacting to a Supreme Court case, for example, you would have one group saying this is horrible for religious freedom and another group saying this is the most important thing done to protect religious freedom. And it's a fascinating debate and I encourage people to be following this topic because I I never knew that this topic could get even hotter, but it has. And we're going to have more Supreme Court rulings coming this summer that will just turn the temperature up even higher. Kelsey Dallas, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take good care. Kelsey Dallas covers religion and politics for the Desiree News and serves as deputy editor of the In-Depth team. She holds a master's degree in religion from Yale Divinity School and lives with her family in Salt Lake City, Utah. That's all for this week. A special thanks to our producer, Kevin McCarthy, our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. I have a quick update about our book club. We are moving the date. It is now Thursday, May 27th, which gives you even more time to decide to join us, which I hope you will. It's going to be live on Zoom to RSVP, get information, or ask any questions, email lila at lila at interfaithradio.org. This month, we're reading Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists by Chen Zing Han. Friends, before we go, I just want to say a quick word about what's happening in India. Each and every morning, I wake up to look for updates from family members. And to say that the situation there is dire would be an understatement. If you can get the COVID-19 vaccine, please don't refuse. Please don't hesitate. Please don't delay. Make every effort you can to get vaccinated, to get your loved ones vaccinated. Talk to those who are hesitating. Reach out and ask why. Share information from knowledgeable and trusted resources. Our families are clinging to the hope that we will all pull together as human beings to do what's right, to use the knowledge and the science that we have to take steps to protect ourselves and to protect our neighbors. And that includes getting vaccinated. Wherever you are, I hope you're well, I hope you stay connected, and I really hope you get vaccinated. I hope to see you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan.